We'll grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be at today. Perhaps you've heard the term false dilemma before. So according to the philosophy department at Texas State University, a false dilemma is when you reason from an either-or position and you haven't considered all relevant possibilities. So they give some examples. America, love it or leave it. It's a false dilemma because there are other ways to relate to America other than loving it or leaving it. Another example is, are you a Republican or a Democrat? It's an obvious false dilemma because there are very real third-party options you could ascribe to instead. You don't need to be an elephant. You don't need to be a donkey. You can be whatever the independents or libertarians or green partiers, partiers want for their party animal, which, I don't know, maybe they're up for some suggestions. But in their list of examples, Texas State offers another one. If you're not going to heaven, you must be going to you know where. To them, that's a false dilemma, because of course there are other options, not just heaven and hell. I wonder what Jesus would have said to that. Based on this example, I assume the philosophy department at Texas State would have issue with our service theme this morning. Sinners must repent or face God's judgment. To them, that either-or statement would probably be a false dilemma, an intellectual fallacy, because there must be other options. Or are there? If we really take Jesus at his word, are there other options apart from trusting in him or being judged by God? Church, we're back in Luke this morning. We'll take a break the next two weeks, as I mentioned before, and then we back to finish up Luke 10 by God's grace, if he wills, on June the 6th, uh, and then we'll dive into a study in 1 Samuel for the summer. But if you remember where we are in Luke, last week we saw Luke 9.51 as sort of a hinge point in Luke's gospel. It's where Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem. And so for the next 10 or so chapters, up until Luke 19 or thereabouts, we're going to see Jesus continuing his ministry in sort of a haphazard route, different places at different times, but he's always going to be having an eye towards impending suffering and impending victory at Jerusalem. And as we begin chapter 10 this morning, we see Jesus once more sending out his disciples on mission. As they go, Jesus tells them, they're going to have a message, and that message is going to be welcomed by some and rejected by others. But for those who reject the message, Jesus has stern warning. This is not a false dilemma. He says, repent or be judged. So get your Bibles, Luke 10. I'm going to read for us the first 16 verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. And sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 
carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. No surprise, three points for our service today. Prayer, program, and price. Prayer, program, and price. First, let's look at prayer. So Luke is actually the only gospel to speak of this sending out of 72. Uh, Matthew and Mark talk about the sending of the 12, Only Luke mentions and follows up with a a kind of continuation, broadening of that ministry through the 72. There in verse 1, after this, so after what we saw last week at the end of Luke 9, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So again, back in the beginning of chapter 9, a a month or so ago, we saw the sending of the 12. Now we see a broadening circle of messengers, up to 72 of them. But that's not where the Lord wants to stop. The circle will continue to widen. Do you see that in verse 2? And Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus has 72, right? But he says, I want more. Pray for more to be raised up. Pray for more to be sent out. This isn't the only time Jesus uses this this sort of illustration of a grain harvest to picture the role of his messengers. See, there's a harvest of souls And there's a harvest of souls then to be plucked out from God's judgment. Jesus says this harvest is bound to be a bumper crop. But more harvesters must be raised up. I think it's interesting, church, to notice that Jesus' first exhortation in light of this labor shortage is not to work longer hours or to strategize a long-term plan or to kind of rejigger the whole thing to make sure they get as much word out to as many people as they can. Those things might be all fine and good. But Jesus' first command is pray. 
plead with the Lord of the harvest to raise up more harvesters. This is the Lord's work. And so if it's the Lord's work, then we want him to be at work through us. And so we must pray because prayer is the clearest way to show our dependence on the Lord of the harvest. We might labor, but he is the one who will produce the fruit. He is the one who's going to change the world. In our mission to proclaim his kingdom, we rely on him alone. I've used this quote before, but it always makes an impact on me. One pastor says, prayer is the sound dependence makes. So as these 72 go out in obedience, Jesus calls them to pray to the chief harvester that he would raise up more and more messengers for his kingdom. Church, we must pray in this way too. We must pray for more people to be raised up to go and proclaim the gospel. This is one of the things we're called to do as a church family, to plead before the throne of grace that more men, more women, more children, even amongst our own church family, would be called to go. How will they hear the gospel unless someone goes? How will our communities and our schools and our workplaces hear unless the Lord raises up messengers? Of course, we're all called to be messengers of the kingdom. We'll see soon that right after Jesus says pray, he says go, right? It's not an either or. But we must also pray that even more would be raised up. And and listen, church, this is not some out-of-touch, pie-in-the-sky, unrealistic prayer. Because who do we pray to? We pray to the chief harvester. We pray to the Lord of the harvest, and he's in charge. He can actually do something about sin-sick hardened hearts. He can actually do something to change the misery of damned sinners. And that should compel us to pray all the more. For he has a plan and he's going to accomplish it through us. In his children's book called They Shall Be Mine, John Tallick tells a story of four Scottish ministers who went to Egypt in the year 1839 to to be missionaries. And along their way, one of them fell from a camel. His name was Dr. Black. He was so injured that it was decided he needed to return to Scotland. Uh, One of the other three had to accompany him. And so Dr. Keith, another of the ministers, made his way home with the injured Dr. Black. However, on their way, they were, uh, I think they were on the, the Danube, and they were, they were going, making their way home through Austria. And, and as they were there, they were thinking, like, all our plans have been ruined. I mean, even if we were to stop here in Austria, they knew that Austria was a place where a Protestant mission would not be permitted. For there they were, uh, passing the, the capital city of Hungary called Pest, later Budapest. And there... They both became so gravely sick, they stopped. They got a hotel room. And sooner or later, their dire situation became known in the palace that was up on the hill. Talek writes, If they had known what was happening, that message going to the palace, both Dr. Black and Dr. Keith would have done all in their power to prevent their presence in Pest being known in the palace. But they were too ill to to know anything. In fact, at one time, Dr. Keith's pulse stopped beating. It looked very like the end. 
Church, the Lord of the harvest had a plan. See, in the palace up on the hill lived the archduke and his wife, Maria Dorothea. Maria was a, a Protestant Christian. Pallack writes, Every day she would sit with her Bible beside a window in the palace, and there she would pray to God for herself and for Hungary. The thought of the city of Pest and the vast Hungarian plains stretching beyond it without the gospel and without God was sometimes too much for her. Turning from the window, she would stretch out her arms to heaven and plead with God to send a missionary to Hungary. She did so for seven years. And then she learned of these two sick men right below her in the village. Even though she must have been afraid, as others were, of their, of their sickness, she went and she arranged for their best comfort to be had. Her prayer was answered. And God raised up laborers to reap a harvest in that land. And I love how Talek ends the story. He says, when Dr. Black fell from his camel in the Egyptian desert, neither he nor Dr. Keith could have dreamt that this would lead them to the place where they had set out to find, which they had set out to find back in the spring of that year. Nor could they have known that their arrival in Pest, sick and friendless, was to be the answer to the prayers which the Archduchess had been offering for seven years. But Christians must expect surprises because they serve a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. In that town, sick, close to death, the last thing they wanted was word of their presence to be heard in the palace. And yet it was from the palace, as Talek says, that their help came. Church, the Lord of the harvest is called that for a reason. He is sovereign over the harvest. He sends out laborers with his message, and he works all this, believe it or not, through our prayers. Yours and mine. So in what ways this week can you be imploring God to send out harvesters to go into the harvest? Who can you be praying for? Who can you be praying to be raised up? Who can you go to? Because these 72 are called to pray, but they're also called to go, right? That's the next thing we see. Program. What's the program they are to follow as they go? Jesus has it for them, beginning in verse 3. He has these specific instructions on how these 72 are to go about their mission. You can't stop with prayer. They need to go. He says, go your way. Behold, you will have great success and comfort everywhere you go. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. There's going to be no joy ride. There's going to be rejection. There's going to be conflict. But they follow the sovereign Lord of the harvest. Jesus doesn't offer them comfort. He offers them an eternal kingdom. Christian, as you go into the world, in your workplace, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your schools this week, and you're surrounded by people who need the gospel, you should not expect, as you think about how the Lord would call you to speak to them, that you will remain unafraid and unaffected. But you should expect to remain reliant upon an unbeatable Savior. 
go, obey his call, and leave the results to him. The scholar Daryl Bach writes on this verse, and he says, they will be as vulnerable as lambs before wolves. With the image comes the idea that protection comes from the great shepherd, God himself. This is why, though the risk is great, survival is possible. Jesus sends them out to dangerous territory, but they are not alone. They are to depend on him. You know, when the church is compared to lambs and sheep, Often, nearby, they're reminded that they have a shepherd. There in verse 4 and following, we see similar instructions to what we saw Jesus tell the 12 back at the start of chapter 9. Things like carry no money bag, carry no knapsack, no sandals. I think it's backup sandals, just FYI. And, and greet no one on the road. So what are the, what are the, what's the point of all this? The, the big points are dependence and urgency dependence on God for all they're going to need and urgency to proclaim his kingdom, urgency to complete this task, the task they've been given. Jesus warns them there's going to be opposition, wolves, he calls them. But notice in response, he doesn't, he's not like you're, you're little lambs, they're big wolves, therefore, you know, get everything you got. Pack up as many weapons as you have. Store up as much food and, and stuff to, to, that you'll need to survive on the road. Get everything you need. Scramble. Zombie apocalypse backpack, right? No. No, he says, hardly take a thing. Rely on me. I'm sending you. I think this is a really helpful application for us as a church. I think we often hear from our own hearts and from the, the, the talk of other members of this church around us and, and even broadly Christians that we know that we feel afraid to speak the gospel because we feel ill-equipped. Ill-equipped to, to, to do it in our personality. We're, we're introverted. We wish we were more bolder. We wish we were more engaging and winsome and people liked being with us. That would make it easier, right? You could develop a friendship. I wish I was more like that. I wish I was better equipped in my personality. Or you wish you were better equipped in your intellect. You, you wish you were more persuasive. You wish you always had a comeback to the really smart people that know all the arguments against your faith. You wish you knew all the best things to say about the resurrection and creation and the existence of God. Christian, do you see what these disciples are going out with? Next to nothing. Talk about ill-equipped. Just the clothes on their back, not much more. They do not look daunting. They do not look like somebody you might want to listen to perhaps until they start with the signs, right? But they have a powerful Savior. So they go out in obedience and in trust. In verse 5, we continue to see this program of the proclamation of the gospel. We see these disciples are bringing a message of peace, God's peace. So when they enter a house, Jesus tells them to say, peace be to this house and if they're welcome, that peace will remain on that house. However, if they're rejected, the peace of God will not remain. It will leave with them. It makes sense, right? 
To reject the God of peace is to reject peace itself. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells the disciples to remain where they are, to, to receive the provisions they need as they go. This might be another way we saw back with the 12 that they're kind of contrasted to cynic philosophers of the day that would travel. Uh, they're they're going to stay put, right? Not needing to go and accrue as much stuff as they can, as much food as they can. And in verse 9, we see some components of their mission. Healing the sick, and then giving this all-important message that is repeated in our text. The kingdom of God has come near to you. See, Jesus' healings, Jesus' miracles were not just a world peace initiative. They weren't just an attempt to restore health to communities or good function to societies. I'm sure they did a lot of those things. But Jesus' healings and miracles were signs. Signs of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. This is one of my favorite words that theologians use. Inbreaking. I love that word. There's an inbreaking in Jesus' ministry of the kingdom into the world. And so as these disciples travel and speak of the kingdom and they work wonders, they're showing more than just, man, I got power. They're showing something's coming. Something has come. The kingdom of God is beginning and it's coming close to you. Daryl Bach again says, the king is here and the images of his power are present. It's time to respond and enter in. That's the call. That's the proclamation. But what if they don't? What if they reject his kingdom? What if they spurn his messengers? Verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets the idea there is not just like a back alley, it's like a main street. And say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. If their answer is no, then God's answer is no. And this shaking off of dust that we saw at the beginning of chapter 9 is a show of judgment. It's a testimony against them. So it will be for those who do not repent. This is an either or. There's only two ways to respond to the message that Jesus' messengers are bringing. There's no false dilemma here. Either repent and turn and enter into the kingdom or face God's judgment. See, there's a price to pay for reject rejecting Jesus. That's our final point today. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day, judgment day, for Sodom than for that town. That town meaning the town that rejects the message. So for the town that re rejects the disciples, rejects their message of the kingdom, rejects their signs and wonders that attest to that kingdom in breaking into the world, for that town, they will bear more responsibility for their unbelief than even the town of Sodom. Remember Sodom? Back in the, the middle of the book of Genesis? A city utterly destroyed by fire sent down from heaven along with sulfur, from God for their sin and their wickedness. 
When you kind of look at Sodom, I, I imagine these kind of the, the, the people hearing this message think Sodom, and they're thinking, man, Sodom? You, you can't get much worse of a fate than Sodom. But Jesus here makes a point by saying Sodom hadn't seen what these cities are now seeing. The cities in Jesus' day are hearing his message, seeing his wonders, and they're seeing the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth. They're seeing so much more than Sodom had ever seen, and yet they're still not believing. Church, the shock value here, I think, is high. I mean, Sodom? Sodom's the pits. Sodom's the rock bottom of God's judgment. And yet Jesus is telling us, you're going to be judged even more severely than Sodom? Yes, he is saying that. He's saying, you've seen the kingdom of God. You've seen my signs and wonders. You still have not believed. You still have not repented. There in verses 13 through 15, Jesus turns his sights to particular cities who have seen his wonders, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. He brings up two more Old Testament cities, Tyre and Sidon, two more ancient cities impacted by God's judgment. You can read about that in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Even they will fare better in the last judgment. Why? Again, because they did not see what the cities of Jesus' day are seeing. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, they've seen the king. And they've rejected the king. If what they've seen had been seen in Tyre and Sidon, surely, Jesus says, Tyre and Sidon would have sat in that itchy sackcloth burlap and tossed ashes and dust over themselves just to make it clear we're super repentant. You know, I, I wonder if Jesus might say the same thing of our culture today. I mean, we stand on the other side of the cross. We stand on the other side of the resurrection. Each one of us has the Bible at our fingertips at all hours of the day. We see even more clearly the kingdom of Christ than Karaz and Bethsaida and Capernaum. I wonder if what we see right now could have seen back then by them, I wonder if they would have repented and believed. And yet our world, our culture, rejects the kingdom that has drawn so close to us. There's personal application here, too. I wonder, Christian, have you, like me, ever thought to yourself when you're, you're feeling extra doubt, doubtful, you're, you're struggling with second-guessing whether you, what you believe makes any sense at all? I, I wonder if you, you've had this thought. Man, I just, I just wish I would have seen Jesus in the flesh. I mean, if I would have seen Jesus out on those plains and I would have seen those leprous people instantly turned and, and healed, if I would have seen demon-possessed children writhing on the ground, made up and ready to hug their parents again, if I would have seen the dead raised to life, yeah, I would believe. Yeah, I would have no choice but to believe. There'd be no more doubts left. Friend, I'm afraid that's just not true. Even those who saw all those things happen, Luke says still, are rejecting the Lord. 
it's really not about the miracles. It's about who the miracles are pointing to. It's about a laying down of our kingdom rule in our lives and submitting all to the king. The one in whom we must place all our trust, our very lives, repenting of our sin, turning in faith to him alone. J.C. Ryle has said, it was possible to hear Christ preach and to see Christ's miracles and yet remain unconverted. And then he says this haunting phrase, no sin makes less noise, but none so surely damns the soul as unbelief. Christian, don't be fooled into thinking you'd believe better if you saw the signs. Believe because you found a savior, not a wonder worker. Believe because you found a rescuer, not a motivational speaker. And friend, perhaps you're here or you're, you're tuning in this morning and you're not a Christian. We're so happy that you would join us, that you would tune in. Um, we're, we're honored that you would join us. But there's a message the word of God proclaims to you today. And it's this. God is holy. And he has created each one of us to glorify him with our lives. Yet each one of us in our sin have turned away from his design for our lives and we've lived for ourselves, rejecting him from being the Lord and King of our lives. And that's royally screwed up our lives and our world. If you wonder why so many bad things happen, this is why. We've rejected the design of our maker. And yet in his divine mercy, God has not left us in our sin, but he has sent his son to die in our place, taking our judgment in our stead on the, tr on the cross. And in his death, Jesus exhausted God's righteous wrath against our rebellion and has made us a way to know God as our father, not our foe. So if you will repent of your sin and you'll trust in Jesus' death and resurrection in your place, you will be saved. You'll be brought into the family of God forever. That's the message of the kingdom of God. See, Jesus here warns of judgment, doesn't he? But before that final judgment comes, he will take the judgment on himself at the cross in just a matter of days. The woes of judgment we see there in verses 13 through 15 show a little bit of the judgment that would come cascading down on Jesus in Jerusalem. And when we get to Luke, the end of Luke as a church, Lord willing, we're going to see Jesus hanging there, crying out in agony and loneliness for you and me. See, before the final judgment day, came a judgment day on the cross as Jesus himself was judged for any who would trust in him. So friend, won't you trust in Jesus today? You only have two options. This is a true dilemma for you. Repent and believe or reject and be judged. That's not what I say. It's what Jesus says. What well, is what I say? I say it because Jesus says it. And even more of a, of a zooming in of, of application here, I think, is important here. 
Because, friend, maybe, maybe you're here and you're just super familiar with church and Christianity, teachings of Jesus. You've memorized things. Perhaps you've grown up in a Christian home. Perhaps you have tons of Bibles on your shelf of different editions and translations, and you really like the intellectual pursuit of doctrine. And yet you haven't submitted your life to Christ. You're a religious person, but you know you have no real connection to Jesus. You know Christianese. You fit well in Christian circles, but you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ. You have not handed your life over to the king and entered into his kingdom. If that's you, friend, beware. This text includes some striking warning for you. See, the the kingdom of Christ has come very close to you. It's come to your very door. And if you reject it, your judgment will be severe. So do not spurn the mercy of God. Do not test his judgment. There's still time. Turn to him today. In Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, this passage compels us to go and spread the gospel, right? We see these 72 going out, and we see, in some ways, a pattern for us as we are sent out. We can take more than a knapsack. Don't get too specific. But we, too, are are sent out, each one of us. But before you take that application and go run with it today, which I hope you do, Remember what fuels your obedience in this mission. What fuels your obedience is the grace of God to you. Christian, your judgment has been completely exhausted at the cross. In Christ, when you stand before his judgment seat, as we'll sing in a little bit, you will not plead your own merits, but you will plead the merits of Christ alone the rock of ages cleft for you. And in that gratitude, in that confidence, then go out and proclaim the kingdom. We go as messengers of the king. Do you see that in verse 16? The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You know, there's great comfort and confidence in the Christian to know that when you are rejected for Christ's sake, so is he. And you're just following the pattern he has laid out for you in his own suffering and his own glory. So next time you're rejected for Jesus, be like the apostles in Acts and, and rejoice a little bit. Saddened that someone would turn away the, the grace of God, but rejoicing that you follow one who is rejected along with you and has borne your judgment for you. He is the one who makes his call through you. So be speaking the word of Christ. And may we speak as a church so that people hear Jesus and his call through us. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that in the storm of your just judgment, we have a rock we can cling to a rock that was rent in two and took the judgment for us. We cling to that rock. We hide ourselves in that rock. We cling to our Savior. 
And we ask that our salvation will be even more real to us this week as we go out with this message. Lord, we do pray for obedience in this, in this matter. We do pray for your work in us so that as we gather again next Sunday, we might have reports for one another of how we've spoken of your name. Lord, we pray that many would welcome it and turn and be spared your judgment, seeing it all on your son instead. In his name we pray. Amen.